All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada. Om Vishnu Vishnu Srimati Vakanta Swamiti Namo. Namaste Saraswati Devi Devani Pachami Vasasa Sindhani Paschari Sajani. Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Talapalkamala. Sri Guru Vaishnavascha. Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Ganatam Vitam Sajivam. Sadavaitam Sagatam Tarjana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva. Sri Radha Krishna Prabhupada Sahagana Radhita Sri Vishakam Vitamascha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So it's March 15, 2009 in Wellington, New Zealand, Angkor Yoga. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam. Canto 4, Chapter 10, Dhruva Maharaja's Fight with the Yakshas. Text 2 through 4. Do you have text 2 up there? Elayam apibaryayam Vayaputram Mahabala Putramutkalanamanam Yosidratnamajitanat Ilayam apibaryayam Vaya putra mahabala, putra mutkalanamanam, yosid ratnam ajijanat, Namapi Baryayam Yaho Putram Mahabalaha Vaya Putram Mahabalaha Putramutkalanamanam Putramutkalanamanam Yosidrat Ilayam, unto his wife named Ila, Api, also, Baryayam, unto his wife, Vayaho, of the demigod Vayu, controller of air, Putram, unto the daughter, Mahabalaha, the greatly powerful Dhruva Maharaj. Putram, son, Utkala, Utkala, Namanam, of the name, Yoshit, female, Ratnam, 
jewel, ajijanat, he begot. Translation. The greatly powerful Dhruva Maharaj had another wife named Ila, who was the daughter of the demigod Vayu. By her, he begot a son named Utkala and a very beautiful daughter. So here we see that after Dhruva Maharaj's father goes to the forest, and Dhruva marries, and he not only marries, but he marries two women. So the Vedic society had occasionally women having more than one husband. Occasionally. Uh, I know of three instances in the Bhagavatam. One, of course, the most famous one is? Krishna. Of women having more than one husband. women, oh. Yeah, what's the most famous woman who has more than one husband? Draupadi, of course. And that was a very unusual situation because Draupadi was married to all the Pandavas and each of them also had other wives. Each of them had at least one other wife. So it was definitely a, 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 how would you say, not a common household (laughs) situation. And uh, she's very, very famous. Of course, practically everybody in India knows that Draupadi had more than one husband. There's also Madi Shah, who married all ten of the Pracheta brothers. And then there's another one whose name I can't remember, who married all the fire gods, I think 49 fire gods. That's a lot of husbands to try to keep happy. I'm sure there's a few other cases. Uh, We find, though, that that's that's a little unusual. But the idea of a man taking more than one wife is quite usual, especially for the kings. Especially for the kings who could afford to maintain many households. And what's particularly interesting here is people often use the story of Guru Maharaj's two mothers to criticize this practice. Because you've been following the story, so you know what happened. Now, he had his his mother and his stepmother, and his stepmother, because his father also had two wives, and his stepmother said, okay, you can't be the king. My son's going to be the king. In fact, I so much don't want you to be the king that you can't even sit on your father's lap, which then, of course, pushed Dhruva Maharaj to go to his own mother and go to the forest and seek out Vishnu. So people often use that as an example that this idea of of polygamy is immoral. But if it was immoral, then we wouldn't find Dhruva Maharaj himself doing it. So really, the problem between Suniti and Suruchi was the same problem we find in many royal families uh, throughout the Bhagavatam and throughout history, this desire for power. Uh, wanting to have power. And if you want to have power, then you're willing even to insult or kill your family members. I was just reading this morning in Krishna book, and Prabhupada was talking about if you really want power, then you should become a great devotee of the Lord. Then the Lord is standing behind you, just like the father is standing behind the little child. You know, the bullies can't bother you if your father or your big brother is there, even if you yourself aren't that powerful. And he gives the example of Maharaj Ambarish. Anyway, so the point is that if Dhruva Maharaj, having experienced that with his stepmother, if he decided there was something immoral about polygamy, he would not have engaged in it. And this brings out a a very interesting point about the position of women in traditional society because many people look at the way women are described in the Shastra and think, well, that doesn't seem to be very respectful. I mean, nowadays, for example, this idea of having more than one wife, we generally think of it as something that's not very respectful of the woman, that it's something that, oh, some man is just uncontrollably lusty and therefore he wants to enjoy many women. But we don't find that 
the, anywhere in the Shastra, polygamy is condemned. For example, hunting is condemned. Hunting is allowed, gambling is allowed for the royalty, but it's condemned. But this practice we don't find condemned. And this is a society in which women were very, very highly regarded. It's that if a woman is insulted, then the whole family is finished. So therefore, it shows that we don't really understand this, this practice, that we don't really understand why there was this kind of, and I said sometimes even the women would have more than one husband, why this kind of plural marriage went on. And it's very easy to look at things in the Shastra and automatically condemn them according to our modern ideas. But if we look a little bit more deeply, we'll find that in the modern society that women are not very well treated, even though we have this idea of monogamy. You know, there's no question, nobody can have more than one wife. But in our so-called monogamous culture, it's very normal for a man to have many girlfriends, at once even, and for it to be considered wonderful. The man who banned that Playboy magazine, I don't know if you're familiar with this part of the world. Yeah, Hugh Hefner. So he has, I don't know how many, nine, ten women at a time. And you know, people don't think he's a very moral person in general, but nobody says, oh, you're just exploiting these women. And yet if he wanted to marry them and take responsibility for them, then all of a sudden it would become criminal. So what he's doing now is not considered criminal. I mean, religious people may say it's immoral, but it's not considered criminal. And they'll put his picture in the paper with his ten women, who are all you know, 50 years younger than he is and who he's not taking any responsibility for. And that's wonderful, but the moment you want to take responsibility, actually care for the woman, actually love the woman, actually maintain the woman, give the woman children, etc., then immediately becomes criminal. So this is our twisted thinking in modern society. Or we also have in modern society something which is very much like polygamy, called divorce and remarriage. <laughs> you know, so this problem that Dhruva Maharaj had with his stepmother, lots of people have today with his stepmother too. Lots of people have a problem that you know the father divorces and remarries, and then the stepmother wants to cheat you out of your inheritance. Why should my husband's children from his first marriage get his money? You know, my children should get the money. And the same kind of thing goes on, the same sort of, of family disunity. And you'll see, in fact, you know, even in our Hare Krishna movement. I was at a temple not too long ago where one man had left his first wife and remarried, and his first wife lived next door. <laughs> huh? But he's not actually taking care of her, and she doesn't get any emotional benefit or any social benefit from having a husband. She's a single mother, alone and neglected. But for all practical purposes, he has two wives. So this is... We need to be careful sometimes when looking at things in the scripture that we, we, we're sort of immune to the unfairness and the absurdity of the society in which we've grown up in. We just think it's normal. We think, well, as long as you just have one at a time, it's all right. Never mind that you've left a whole trail of unprotected and neglected women and children. At least you only have one at a time. Whereas in a society where plural marriage was allowed, although generally it was one man to more than one woman, there was the idea of protection and respect. It meant that, that nobody had to be remain unmarried and that there was protection. And if you wanted to marry somebody who was very qualified but already married, well, you could do it. Well, it actually made the men more responsible because the best men could marry more than one woman. <laughs> <laughs> 
therefore it wasn't like, well, I guess I just married him because he's the only one left. Anyway. And anything else you want to say about this particular verse? It's also interesting that he marries a woman who's the daughter of a demigod. So this shows us that in former ages there was exchanges between the human beings and the residents of the higher planets. Okay, we're going to go on here in text 3. Utamas twa rito dwaho mir gayayam balishisa hatapunya janenandro tanmatasya gatim gata Juru Maharaj's younger brother, Uttama, who was still unmarried, once went on a hunting excursion and was killed by a powerful yaksha in the Himalaya mountains. Along with him, his mother, Suruchi, also followed the path of her son, and she died. So this, by the way, what time am I supposed to end? So this is also very important. This relates back to, again, the whole incident with Suruchi, saying that Dhruva couldn't sit on his father's lap. And Druva was very angry at his stepmother and his stepbrother. And his, when he went to the forest to worship Vishnu, he went with a desire for revenge. Yeah, he wanted a kingdom greater than that. He wanted to, to have something greater. I mean, if someone insults us, often we want to show them. Well, I'll do something better than you. I'll do something higher than you. So that was Dhruva Maharaj's mood. Well, I'm going to do something better than my father, or even than my grandfather, and I'm going to show them. I'm going to sh- and he was particularly angry at his stepmother and his stepbrother. Now, he was also angry at his father, but he was especially angry at his stepmother and his stepbrother. And when he saw the Lord, of course, and after performing all that austerity in bhakti yoga, he was meditating, of course, on this mantra you have. Somewhere in this room. There it is. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So he was meditating on that mantra, and he also was, had formed a deity. He was meditating on a deity, meditating on Krishna's pastimes. And when he saw the Lord, he had no more desire for revenge. But because he had worshipped the Lord with that originally in his heart, Lord Vishnu said to him that what would happen is exactly what's happening in this verse. He said, your brother will go and be killed by Yaksha, and your stepmother will follow him and also die. And in the purport to that verse where that's predicted, Prabhupada says something really amazing. He said, if one serves a devotee without knowledge, he will get a good result. And if one offends a devotee even without knowledge, he does not know where he is going. And what's particularly interesting about this is that Suruchi and Uttama didn't know when they offended Dhruva that he was a great Vaishnava. In fact, you could even say that when they offended Dhruva, he wasn't a great Vaishnava. Rupa Goswami gives Dhruva Maharaj as the example of someone who's approaching the Lord for wealth. You know the four reasons pious people come to Krishna? Distress, in search of knowledge, and, well, yeah, okay, then you'd say inquisitive and wanting the absolute truth, and wanting wealth. So, artha artati, those are the main reasons people come to God. They want happiness or they want to be free of distress which is almost two different ways of saying the same thing. But I can be free of distress without getting happiness. <laughs> right? So some people want positive happiness. Some people want to be free of distress. Some people are just curious, and other people are really looking for God. Now, really looking for God is very rare. 
Many of us think, oh, yes, I can, because I'm really looking for God. But <laughs> Krishna says a person like that is practically like himself. And the examples of those sort of people are the four Kumaras, people who are already Brahmin realized, and now they're looking for God. So most of the time when we think we're like that, we're probably inquisitive. And it's probably some mix of looking for happiness or looking to get free of distress. And most religions in the world teach that the purpose of religion is either to find happiness or to get free of distress. Those are their two purposes, to go to heaven and be happy or to get salvation and get free of distress. There's practically no religion in the world that teaches that the goal is selfless love. I mean, even if they talk about selfless love, it's in the context of getting free from distress or getting happiness. Now, again, because practically all of us who take up even Krishna consciousness have that as our initial motive. It's rare that our initial motive is 100% inquisitiveness and very rare that it's 100% I want to find God. That's extremely unusual. So our main motive in, in the beginning is going to be also, I want to be happy or I'm tired of suffering. And you'll find because of that that the scriptures and Srila Prabhupada often dangle this carrot in front of us. You know, you're not happy in the world if you really want freedom from suffering. If you really want real liberation, then you should take to Krishna consciousness. Like the section I was just reading in Krishna book, where Prabhupada's saying, if you want real power, then you should be a devotee. If you want fame, then you should become a devotee, because the devotee is the most famous. But why are they saying these things? Because if the, if the guru, if the sadhus, if the shastra says, hey, would you like to get pure love of God, totally selfless, you'll get nothing in return, we'd say, no, no I really don't think so. Because <laughs> <laughs> right? right? the great devotees, they're, they're thinking the prema bhaktas, especially the residents of Vrindavan, they don't want anything in return. Nothing. Krishna, let me serve you. And if you give me anything in return, I don't care. I just want to see you happy. We all have a little experience of this kind of thing. A very little experience in this world that we love somebody and we want them to be happy and we don't even care if we're acknowledged. We're just happy that they're happy. You know, we, we may help to put on some festival or whatever. We just like to see that it's going well, even if nobody ever acknowledges what we did. But generally, we want some acknowledgement. Generally, we want somebody to say, wow, you, you really worked hard cleaning the kitchen, or you know, thank you for setting up the sound system, or, or something like that. Our motive is, is not entirely just that everybody else is happy. And it's very hard for us to relate to this as being the ultimate goal of life, something that's totally selfless. So therefore, these other things are put up in front of us. Because as soon as we hear this, we think, well, well, well what about me? <laughs> that doesn't sound very attractive. <laughs> it just happens, I'll give everything to Krishna, and I'll be ignored, and I won't be happy. So therefore, there's all this reassurance. Don't worry. You'll have unlimited happiness. The devotee enjoys more than Krishna. So Krishna wants to take the position of the devotee. You'll have happiness that's so much greater than anything you have in the world. And you'll have freedom, and there won't be any suffering. And So these two things, happiness and freedom from distress, are constantly being repeated over and over again so that we'll work for the real goal. So anyway, Juvamarsh was at first motivated 
just by this desire for not only selfish personal happiness, but by vengeance. And Krishna gave it to him. Of course, by the time Krishna gave it to him, he was ashamed of it. He thought, I really wanted something nasty. Now that I see you, I feel fully satisfied. So again, this is another example for us. Don't worry about your own happiness. When you're really in touch with Krishna, you'll feel unlimited happiness. Now why did Uttanapad, the king, not suffer? Why do we find just Uttama and Saruchi suffering? Because Uttanapad, Dhruva's father, was also guilty, wasn't he? We call that guilt by commission or guilt by omission. By commission, I do something. By omission, I just allow something to be done. There's a story like that with, it was Devananda Pandit, when Srivastakur was listening to his Bhagavatam classes. He was displaying some symptoms of ecstasy. Devananda Pandit was very critical and asked him to leave, and his disciples didn't say anything. They just tolerated it. So Uttanapad didn't object when Dhruva tried to get on his lap, and Saruchi said, get off your father's lap. You're from another wife. You're not really qualified. I'm the chief queen. My son should be the king. The power is going to go to me. Uttanapad didn't say, wait a minute. You know, I love both my wives. I love both my sons. What, what are you doing? Let him come on my lap. He didn't say that. He was controlled. Uh, Suniti. Niti means logic and also good instruction, morality, and ruchi means taste. So Uttanapad's two wives, Suniti was a very pious and righteous person, and Suruchi was more into, how should we say, sense gratification. And it's very common that in order to get something for our senses, we may compromise our religious principles. People do that all the time. And this is, of course, the warning, particularly for men, don't compromise your religious principles just to please some woman who's going to push you in a materialistic direction. And it's a little warning for us as, as women that we should make sure that we, we're, we actually have a lot of very powerful shakti. We're the shakti for men, that we use that shakti to inspire men to be righteous, not to inspire men to be materialistic and selfish. Because Saruchi's was, interest was power, her own personal power, the power of her own children. And Uttanupad didn't want to make her angry. Actually, just recently I was speaking to one of my godbrothers. He was telling me that my wife wants our child to go to the best university. And I said, why? I said, first of all, you don't even know if she'll get in. She's only like 10 or 11 years old right now. Who knows if they'll even take her. And then if you get into one of those top universities, you have to work three times as hard to get your degree. And unless you get into one of the top three, nobody even knows anyway. Like one of the top five universities in America is Stanford. I bet you he, you guys haven't even heard of Have you heard of Stanford? Have you heard of Duke? No, okay. So there you go, Duke's like number four in America. You haven't even heard of it. So unless you get into like Princeton, Harvard, Yale, or maybe Stanford, it doesn't really matter. 
even if it's a top, top, top school. So, and he said, in order to do this, I'm going to have to get an extra job. And he's, I don't know, he's already in his 50s. He said, I've always done mostly preaching, maintained myself mostly doing preaching service and done a little bit of work here and there, but now I'm going to have to get a full-time regular job just to send my daughter, to try to send my daughter to Harvard. Maybe she may not get in. Anyway. So I was giving him all these arguments, and he said, you know, Armila, it's useless to give me these arguments because my wife runs the show, and this is her desire. So this is very... This is very common. This is very common, that the woman is pushing for something, even if it's not something that's beneficial, and the husband doesn't want to make her angry. All right, I'll just give my wife whatever she wants. So Uttanapada was also guilty of this. So how come he's not suffering? In fact, he goes to the forest and performs austerities and goes back to Godhead. Do you know why? Why did Uttanapada not suffer? And here we find Suruchi and Utam, they're finished. Any idea why? Was it because he was remorseful? Yes. He was very repentant. And he apologized. But we don't find them apologizing. In fact, Suruchi, when Dhruva comes back, greets him and says, Long may you live. But she never says, you know, I'm really sorry. And she doesn't feel any remorse. So Prabhupada says that the sinful activities of a devotee are burned up in the fire of repentance. And that doesn't mean that, I'm not going to say if, when we do something wrong, that we should go around overwhelmed by guilt and remorse and end up having to take Prozac for our depression. That's not pleasing. Krishna is not pleased with that kind of repentance. But he does want to see that there's some feeling of being sorry. What does repentance really mean? All right, well, think about somebody who offends you. What is it that you want to... know that about them so that you can say that they're repentant. They admit that, that they were wrong. You want them to admit that they were wrong. Okay. What else? What are you looking for? Okay. So that's one evidence that they're that they really think it was wrong. What are they going to do differently in a similar circumstance? Anything else that we're looking for? What does that mean exactly? So what is the, I'm kind of trying to get to that. What does the word sorry mean? If I say, I'm sorry. So I won't, I'll do things differently next time. But I could do things differently next time without really being repentant. And I could even know I was wrong without being repentant because I could think, well, I did the wrong thing and I should do it differently next time because the way I did it this time, I got in trouble. So next time I'm going to do it differently. Is that real? Is that the kind of sorry we're looking for? Okay, so just knowing that, I think knowing it's wrong is important, and saying I'm going to do it differently next time is important, but that's not really enough to show that there's repentance. Isn't there a verse that, that you know, to the devotees? And perhaps 
you've treated, okay, in your heart you realize you've treated that devotee wrong. That means you're, you're connecting with that person's what? What, do you, what have you become aware of? Their emotions. Their emotions. I've connected with that other person's emotions. I, I have some, I feel in my own heart something of how that other person must feel. It's not just intellectual. But I, I have some emotional experience. I mean, I recently had one, one person try to cheat me. And when I realized they were cheating me, I said, you know, I don't want to deal with you anymore. You just tried to cheat me. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again, I won't do it again. I said, can you explain to me how I felt? That was my test. How do you think that this whole thing made me feel? So that's because emotions, when you're, when you're touching emotions, feeling, you're really touching the self. The soul is, we call existence in Sanskrit, is called bhava, when bhava also means emotion. Yeah, and we'll get this in the next verse. That the soul is full of emotion. And if I've done something that caused you some pain, I should become aware that I've caused you pain. It says often in the Shastra that real compassion and real empathy is I know that something hurts me and therefore I don't want to do it to others because I know what pain feels like. Prabhupada talks about this in the story of Nalakavira and Mani Breva that a poor person is less likely to commit an offense because they know what suffering is like. Now, if you've never experienced any suffering, it may be hard. It's like uh, Mark Twain wrote his book called The Prince and the Pauper. Did you have to read that when you were in school? You ever read that book? So it's a, it's a story about a, a British prince who, as a joke, changes places with a poor boy where they look very much alike. And then due to some circumstance, the guards actually think that he's the poor boy and throw him out of the palace. And he has to roam for whatever it was, several months, as a pauper. And he gets to see all of the suffering that's going on in the kingdom that he never would see from the palace. And he gets to see the result of all of the laws that are being passed by the king. You know, they have very, very harsh laws there. You know, you stole a tomato, you know, you'd be in jail for life and beaten and things like this. So because he got to experience what it was like to be an ordinary citizen, when he was returned to the throne, he was a very compassionate king. But if you're just saying, simply staying in the palace, you may not have any idea how your rules are affecting others. So real repentance is that you have some, you really make an effort to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Prabhupada says this is an educated person. Educated person treats others the way they want to be treated. That how did this person feel? And this is not such an easy thing to do. I had an example in my own life a couple years ago where I, there were some devotees I had worked with and there had been a disagreement about how we wanted to go on with the preaching. And I felt that the devotees had been offensive to me in this group. I thought they had been very rude to me and very mean to me and very offensive to me and I was, I was not happy with the whole situation. And several years later, I needed to work with them again. <laughs> and I was speaking to a friend of mine and I said, I don't want to work with these people. They were so nasty to me. And she looked at me and said, you need to go and apologize. I said, I what? Huh? Well, 
I need to go and apologize. They need to apologize to me. I don't need to apologize to them. And I got very angry. And then I stopped and said, you know, if I'm getting this angry, probably you're right. Probably I do need to go apologize to them. I said, I'm going to take this as coming from Krishna. And then I had to sit down. I was really praying for a long time. I said, Krishna, I, I'll take it on faith that I have to apologize to them, but I can't think of what for. And then I thought, all right, let me think of how did they feel? I knew how I felt when we had this. It was a disagreement about preaching. Some of us thought we should preach in one way, and some of us thought we should preach in another. I thought, I know how I felt, but how did they feel? And I started thinking about how they must have felt. And as I started thinking about how they must have felt, all of a sudden, I actually felt sorry. I went from feeling angry and feeling like I was the offended party to all of a sudden feeling genuine remorse. And Krishna had a trick. I tried to just send an email letter asking for forgiveness, but I had one letter wrong in the address and it wouldn't go through. <laughs> so I had to phone the devotee. And uh, there were about three people involved. As I was talking to one of them, the one that I had the most anger about, when I was talking to one of them, I started really gaining an appreciation for this person's sacrifice and service for Prabhupada and what kind of austerities that he and his family had done and their dedication. And that even though still I don't agree with their way that they wanted to push forward that particular project, I still have my own opinion about it, we gained a great appreciation and I had, a, about a year ago, I had a, a similar thing with one devotee where I was sure that she had offended me. And then at one point, Super Soul just said, you know, hey, you've got to call her and apologize. And I called her and she said, no, this morning I was just thinking that I should call you and apologize. <laughs> but the point is that real remorse means that I understand the point of view of the other. And all karma is designed for that purpose. Why do we say if you kill a cow, you have to become a cow and be killed? What's the purpose? To develop in you compassion and empathy. So if I don't choose to put myself in the other person's shoes and choose to think how they're feeling and choose to feel how they're feeling and to care how they're feeling, then the laws of nature will force me to do that. That's the, the intent of karma. Because without empathy, you can't really treat people nicely. Then you're going to only treat people nicely. Therefore, we say the non-devotees have no good qualities because you're only going to treat people nicely for selfish reasons. I'll treat you nicely because that way I can have a place to stay and go yoga and I'll have something to eat. You know, or I'll have my position or whatever. But I don't really care about you. I'm only caring about me. Well, the problem is if I only care about me, then if it will suit me to treat you badly, I'll do that too then I'm not treating you nicely because I have good qualities. I'm treating you nicely because it serves me, and if it serves me, I'll treat you poorly. Therefore, manorataha, you're on a chariot of the mind. Your, your intelligence is what's good for me, and the mind is accepting and rejecting basis on what's good for me. Does that make sense? So it's not really a good quality. If I'm being nice to you to benefit me, if my motive is to benefit me, then if it's more beneficial to me in a particular circumstance to be mean to you, I will do that. Does that make sense? Whereas if I'm nice to you because I care about you as a person, I'm connected with you. I feel that you're just as much a person as I am. 
and your happiness is as important to me as my happiness, which is very inconceivable to a conditioned soul. How can anyone's happiness be more important than my own? But when I come to that point that the happiness of Krishna, and therefore all of Krishna's parts and parcels, is more important than my own happiness, that, that I cannot feel happy if I cause pain to another living entity. It's impossible, because I see that we're connected. We're connected. We're all part of Krishna. I can't have happiness at your expense. It's not happiness. Then I have a good quality. Then I actually have compassion. So at least some start of this has to be there to get free from karma. Does that make sense? If I have no empathy, if I have no compassion, then I have to suffer the reaction in order to gain compassion, or at least get a chance of developing compassion. I still may not. When I'm suffering, I may just become angry. Why am I suffering? I'm a good person. I didn't do anything wrong. Instead of thinking, oh, I'm, I'm suffering because I've caused this same suffering to another living entity. And if I can understand that in the beginning, then I don't need the karma. Right? If I can already understand that I've caused you pain and suffering and grief and fear and anger or whatever I've caused you, and I really feel that in my heart, and I really feel that I want you to be happy, and that I can't be happy if you're not happy, and I'm not going to be happy at your expense, why do I need the karma? I don't. Something like a criminal can often volunteer to do community service in lieu of going to jail. So because Suruchi and Uttama did not have any kind of repentance, therefore they had to suffer. Therefore, they had to suffer. And because the person they offended became a great Vaishnava. So this is also a very good lesson for us because we're living with each other. And we generally say in the Krishna conscious movement, well, I'm not a pure devotee. Well, I'm not a pure devotee. Well, I'm not a pure devotee. Right? And sometimes we even say, yeah, you know, we're not pure devotees. And generally in our preaching and in our dealings with each other, we have as an assumption that we're conditioned souls and not pure devotees, right? That's generally our assumption. We should be very careful because, first of all, there may be some people who are staying with us who are pure devotees. That's one thing. It's not always uh, glaringly obvious. There may be, a, you know, I've, I've met some devotees who are highly advanced in Krishna consciousness and don't have any position of leadership and they do some simple service and hardly anybody knows who they are or what they are or what their mentality is. I mean, we're all chanting japa here. You don't know who in their mind is in the spiritual world seeing Radha and Krishna in their heart. How do you know? So one thing is that we don't know who's already pure, and the other thing is that once somebody started this process, they'll become that, whether today, tomorrow, or 20 years, or for some of us unfortunate souls, 20,000 lifetimes, but however long it may be, once you've started the process, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati says, particularly once one takes initiation, he said it will only be due to something very extraordinary that a person will not complete the process sooner or later. And here we see that the offense was done to Druva before he became a great Vaishnava, but it was counted as an offense to a great Vaishnava. So therefore, because all of us here are great Vaishnavas in the making, at least, uh, therefore we should be very, very careful. Don't think, I was just reading some letters from Prabhupada like this, don't think only, oh, I have to respect my guru. 
I don't have to respect anybody else. Prabhupada said, why are we calling everybody Prabhu? Of course, nowadays in this kind, we think Prabhu is Sanskrit for men and Mataji is Sanskrit mm -hmm. for women. Anyway, I know how that happened and who did that. But anyway, regardless of that. Prabhupada said, why are we calling everybody Prabhu? Why are we calling everybody Master? It was, it was really interesting in some of these letters he was saying, you shouldn't make any distinction between the sannyasis, the brahmacharis, and the grahastas. He said, everybody is my disciple. He said, don't start elevating one above another. Everybody should call everybody Prabhu. He said, people who think I'm only going to respect, well, this one, is, this devotee is deserving of my respect and not others. He said, no, we're all going to have, go back to Godhead and all have an ISKCON in the spiritual world. He said, why, why just this devotee? Because someone was writing to him glorifying just one devotee above the others. I said, why just that devotee? But everybody. He said, except Mr. Nair. Who yeah. <laughs> would try to, to cheat the devotees and blah, blah. He said, we'll all go to Iskand and have another spiritual world there. So this is a good lesson for us. Treat everybody nicely. All right, treat everybody nicely. It doesn't mean uh, treat the guru or the great souls less. It means treat everybody nicely. Treat everybody as a great soul because, frankly, everybody is a great soul. Even we're supposed to treat the little worms and the little bugs nicely, but to speak of the other devotees. Okay, we'll go on to text four. Dhruvo bratir vadam strutva, kopa marsha sutar pita, jaitram saidanam astaya, gata punya janalayam. When Dhruva Maharaj heard of the killing of his brother Uttama by the Yakshas in the Himalaya mountains, being overwhelmed with lamentation and anger, he got on his chariot and went out for victory over the city of the Yakshas, Alakapuri. Purport. Dhruva Maharaj is becoming angry, overwhelmed with grief, and envious of the enemies was not incompatible with his position as a great devotee. It is a misunderstanding that a devotee should not be angry, envious, envious even, Prabhupada says here, or overwhelmed by lamentation. Dhruva Maharaj was the king, and when his brother was unceremoniously killed, funny word, unceremoniously killed. In other words, he was murdered. It wasn't was some sort of bona fide war. It was his duty to take revenge against the Yakshas from the Himalayas. So this is a very, very, very interesting purport that we could talk about for a long, long time. So we're seeing two things going on here. First of all, Dhruva had a duty. It's his duty as the king that if somebody commits a crime, they need to be punished. That's his duty. And he has to do his duty. It's not that, oh, I'm a devotee, and therefore I don't have to do my duty. I'm just thinking about how I was in a temple once where we were working on the altar, and the temple was employing a number of people, some of them just sort of coming to Krishna consciousness. And my father stayed overnight in the life member room. He was a life member. And one of these workers stole his wallet. And the town president got back the wallet, but not the cash that was in it. Although he could have. I said, why didn't you, you know, push him to give back the money or take it to the police or something? He said, oh, I don't want to discourage him in Krishna consciousness. I said, what about encouraging my father in Krishna consciousness? <laughs> what about that? So devotees also, if somebody needs to be punished, they should be punished. We, we had a lot of sentimentality 
and I don't know if we still have it, but we have a lot of sentimentality that if somebody commits some criminal act, oh, it's okay. You know, they're a devotee. Sometimes they should be taken to the police. Punishment needs to be there also. Rectification needs to be there, especially if you're in a position of authority. The caveat here is if you're not in the position of authority, it may not be your position to punish people. So if, if you see that so-and-so devotee is doing something wrong, it doesn't mean that you're the one who meets out punishment to them. You tell the authorities, and it's up to the authorities, and if they don't punish them, then that's basically their responsibility. And the only time you want to intervene is if it's a very serious life or death matter. That's a very important thing. Stick to one's own duty. And in our own duty, whoever we have authority over, we may sometimes have to correct them. And we may sometimes have to say, I'm sorry, you have to leave, or I'm going to call the police, or whatever. That, that may be there. That's part of our service to Krishna. Otherwise, the whole world is chaotic. If criminals never get punished, then how can anybody execute Krishna consciousness? Nobody would be peaceful. You'd have countries, just like there are some countries in the world today, where the government is practically speaking non-existent, and there's just gangs of criminals roaming through the country, burning people's houses and stealing their possessions and raping the women and, you know... And the government doesn't do anything. Sometimes it's the government people that are doing these sort of things in some of these countries. And you read about some of the situations that go on in some countries like that, and you can't even imagine what it would be like. I read about one country where the children have to sleep out in the woods. They can't sleep in their homes. You know, all the women and children have to sleep out in the woods because these marauding bands come through the villages at night and they'll you know, rape and kill all the women and children. So how can you be peaceful? It's kind of hard to sit down and chant Hare Krishna. If, you, if, you're, if you're in... Of course, a great devotee can chant Hare Krishna in any situation. But someone coming to Krishna consciousness, just like you have the center so people can have a peaceful situation. So that's part of our duty, and that's part of the duty of the kings is to maintain peace in society so that people can sit down and chant Hare Krishna. They're not just worried about you know, being killed or dismembered. Now, that's a pretty easy thing to understand, that even though you're a devotee, if you have that duty, you have to do that as your service. What's a lot more difficult here to understand is that a great devotee is experiencing these emotions, and we don't have so much difficulty with the idea that a devotee could experience very positive emotions, joy and exaltation and freedom and peace and connection with all living entities. Those are all emotions too. But here we have grief, envy, Anger? Whoa. I thought we're not supposed to experience any of those emotions. Trividam narikasyedam dvaranasanamatmana kamakrodas tatalobas tasmaretatvayamukkajet There are three gates leading to this hell. Lust, anger, and greed. Every sane man should give these up for they lead to the degradation of the soul. But here he's angry. And he's lamenting. Don't hanker and don't lament. He's lamenting. He's angry. Uh-oh. Guess he's not a devotee. Look at that. Grief, envy. How is that possible? There are two different areas of emotion and I'm not going to draw on the board right now 
But there's material emotion and there's spiritual emotion. The impersonalists are trying to get rid of all emotion, period. They think there's only material emotion. And the impersonalists are trying to get rid of the good emotions, too. <laughs> They're not even interested in exaltation and joy. The impersonalist goal is just simply being, or maybe peace, maybe peace and freedom, maybe. That famous book, Be Here Now, that's the impersonalist idea. Just existence, no emotion. Because materially, our emotions are really a problem. They're a big problem. If someone is controlled by their emotions, if someone's totally controlled by their emotions, and they cannot control their emotions with rationality, we call that mentally ill. Such a person cannot function in society. A little child is totally overwhelmed by their emotions. A very, very young child. A baby. They can't control their emotions with rationality. An animal is controlled by their emotions. But even animals have some rationality. You know, the dog knows that that guy's standing there with a stick, and therefore I can't take the food, even though I want it. Or the dog can reason that a man fed me at 2 o'clock yesterday, and if I come back at 2, maybe I'll get fed again. There are some birds outside my place in Auckland, and sometimes when I go outside, I give them something to eat. So anytime I open my door, they come. They think maybe there's food, especially if I have something in my hands. So if I, if, oh, door opening, lady standing there, something in hands means food. So they have some ability to reason, very small, and they can control their, their desires and emotions a little bit with rationality, not a whole lot. So human society, civilized human society, is mostly means controlling your emotions with rationality. That's mostly what it means to be civilized. It means that generally we're acting on the platform of logic and reason, and we display our emotions only to a small extent in very socially acceptable ways. Isn't it? Right? Material emotions are very dangerous. The happy ones are, too. And you can't just, like, be jumping up and down in the office in ecstasy, you know. Oh, oh you know, people are going to, like, excuse me. Are you all right? Now, let's say we read about the residents of Vrindavan in particular. We read about the emotions of the residents of Vrindavan. So Krishna is wrapped in the coils of Kaliya, and they're experiencing so much grief and lamentation and anxiety. They're practically dying. And Mother Yasoda is fainting when Krishna and Balaram are fighting with the wrestlers in Kamsa's arena. Also, the spectators get to a point where they almost die out of anxiety for Krishna. The anxiety is so intense. And they become, I mean, the, the primary example is Radharani talking to a bee. She becomes almost crazy from our perspective. She's missing Krishna so much that she starts talking to a bee seriously and saying, no, I know you've come as a messenger from Krishna. 
But I don't know if I want to go to that Krishna. I mean, he loved me and then he left me and I don't really know if I want anything to do with him. He's unreliable and you're also unreliable. And I, you know, she's talking to him very seriously. Then he flies away and comes back and she thinks, oh, maybe he told Krishna that I was criticizing him. And she starts praising Krishna to a bee. Oh, and Krishna leaves in the Raslands and the gopis start imitating Krishna's pastimes. And they, they enter into a kind of madness. So we find descriptions of very extreme emotions, both what we would call the positive emotions and the negative emotions by the residents of Vrindavan. Of course, their so-called negative emotions are also sources of happiness. And the example I always give, it's like different flavors of ice cream. Do you have those kind of shops here, 32 flavors? Although why anybody would eat ice cream in Wellington? <laughs> I'm not to get cold here. So it's all ice cream, but you know, one of them, there was a devotee restaurant in one Arab country I visited where they sold all different uh, flavors of ice cream with all natural fruits. So I don't know if you know what sitapal is. It's called custard apple. It was sitapal ice cream. Oh, it was so good. And you know, there was pistachio ice cream, guava ice cream, kiwi ice cream. So all ice cream. Or even we eat some food that's sour. We eat some food even that's bitter. Ayurveda, there's six tastes, not only sweet. If you only eat sweet foods, after a while it would be disgusting, wouldn't it? You want to have something that's salty. You want to have something that's spicy. You want to have something that's astringent. You want to have something even that's bitter. That's enjoyment. So all of these emotions exist on the spiritual level. And they're all enjoyable, even the so-called negative ones. We shouldn't think that this grief and, and even envy is mentioned here. It's interesting, it's envy because Bhaktivinoda Thakur says the only thing that's not allowed in the spiritual world is envy. But yet we find there's even some envious competition between the gopis or between the queens. But it's loving, it's not malicious. It's loving and it's fun and it's exciting. So this is our philosophy, that we are interested in these emotions, and we can see that even materially, the soul is hankering to be able to experience and express extreme emotions, both so-called negative and so-called positive. And therefore, every society has times and places where you're allowed and even encouraged to experience and express extreme emotions. Can you think of what some of those would be? Yes, every, every human society. What sort of circumstances are people really encouraged to feel and express very extreme emotions? Yeah, about, yes, it's <laughs> oh, that's devotees. I'm talking about in society in general. Yeah. Like, um, rugby, like matches. Yes, exactly. Sporting matches. Sporting matches are people. It's their perversion of you know, like kirtan, <laughs> right? Everybody's getting up and and yelling and jumping and right, and acting like fools. They're painting their faces different colors and all <laughs> kinds of things, right? And they're, that, why do you think people watch sporting events? What's motivating people? Oh, finally, here's a socially acceptable time 
when I can express extreme joy, extreme anger, I can feel it and I can express it. The same with a lot of entertainment, you know, going to see some music, so certain some music concerts or different certain entertainment venues where people also are encouraged to feel like that, or at certain social events, weddings, funerals, or also why is there intoxication in society? I mean, one reason is just so people forget that they're suffering. But another reason is that there's certain types of socially acceptable intoxicants in each society. Every society has its socially, not only socially acceptable, but almost socially required. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to live in Western society and not drink alcohol, for example, or not take caffeine. It's very much part of the society. You know, you're expected to have alcohol at such and such. Why? Because people say, well, you know, once you've taken these intoxicants, then you're allowed and expected to express more emotions. I just had someone arguing with me about that, about, you know, what's the benefit of alcohol? And he said, well, it it inhibits your rationality and you're allowed to be more emotional. I said, yeah, that's the soul searching for prema. We're looking for that. So my point is that even though in a civilized society we have to be just very rational, this urge of the soul to experience these great emotions comes out from time to time. It needs some expression. You can't just go 24-7 just being a very rational person who doesn't really express anything like, oh, nice to see you, and nothing beyond that. You know, we, we practically we, we wouldn't be able to do it. So we have these, these outlets. But that's, that's evidence that that's the real desire of the soul. We want to be in a situation like that. And of course, yeah, in our Hare Krishna movement, we have that particularly in our kirtan. But that's our goal. Our goal is to be in a, in a place where we're overwhelmed with these extreme emotions. We're not searching for something impersonal. So thank you very much. This was fun, these verses. I hope you had fun exploring them with me. I mean, it's a little late, but if there's any discussion or anything you want to bring up on any of these points? Yeah? More empathy, yes. Yes. Exactly, exactly. So we should understand that a lot of the suffering that we go through is Krishna either through the law of karma or directly trying to help us to develop empathy. That's the benefit of some kind of suffering, whether poverty or disease or whatever, to develop empathy. It's, it's quite often that we'll be put into a situation very similar to that which we've criticized somebody else for. 
This happens to me a lot. That if I'm critical of somebody else and I don't really have empathy for them. Empathy doesn't mean that I say everything is okay, if, if that makes any sense. You know, if someone is doing something wrong, you can say they're doing something wrong, but it should be with empathy. Do you understand what I mean? It's compassion and, and some understanding that the, person's, the person who's doing something wrong, they're doing it because they feel it's the best choice they can make in the circumstances and the knowledge that they have. It's still wrong, and it's still causing them suffering. But they're doing, out, they're doing it out of some sense of their lack of, of, of having Krishna. They're looking for Krishna. They're just looking for Krishna in the wrong way. Otherwise, if I don't have empathy, then I have the mood that, well, I wouldn't do that if I was in that circumstance. And Krishna is rather clever, and he can always say, oh, really? It takes time. I don't know. If you practice empathy, gradually it will become a habit like anything else that you practice. So at first when you practice it, it will take a lot of time and effort and you have to, okay, I've got to stop what I'm doing. When you're saying it takes time, I'm just, just remembering we, we had a policy in our Gurukula that all the students had to learn public speaking from the age of five. We had a public speaking class once a week. And everybody had to give a speech every week, all the kids. So that worked really well for a kid who started in the school at five or six. They became accustomed to it, and that was just what they did. But I had one student come in at age 13 who said, I'm not doing this. I'm just not doing it. I'm not going to get up and give a speech. And externally, she seemed like a very mild and mellow kind of person, but she was a very <laughs> determined young lady. And I remember she said this to me as we were going in the door of the temple for a program for a festival. And all the other kids were in the temple room, and there was no adult supervising them. I was the supervising adult, and we were walking in. And she said, Mother Irmala, I'm not going to give a speech tomorrow. And yeah, this, this you know, okay, I, gotta, I have my service to do. I have to get in the temple room. I've got to watch these kids. And I just said, yes, you are. And she said, no, I'm not. And then I said, well, I guess I'll have to talk to your mother. She said, you can talk to my mother all you want, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, this is a rule of the school. I started upping the, the power. You know, I kept upping my weapon. I said, it's a school rule. She said, you can throw me out if you want, but I'm not going to do it. Well, that was it. I didn't have any further weapons after that. <laughs> And then I had to take the time to empathize, which was hard because I'd already taken the position of an authority and used power. So using empathy after you've used power is very difficult. It took a long time for her to trust me. We were out there for maybe half an hour. If I had 
my point is that if I tried to empathize with her from the beginning, probably the whole thing could have been settled in about 30 seconds. If I had just said to her, oh, are you feeling a little scared to get up in front of the group? Or you know, you're feeling some, you're feeling embarrassed. If I tried to empathy means again I connect with your emotions. If I just said you're feeling, maybe you're feeling embarrassed, you might say, no, I'm not embarrassed. I'm this, you know, whatever. Just the attempt to connect with her emotionally. And yes, she was afraid. She was afraid and she was embarrassed. And I, then finally I said, okay, look, this is a school rule. I can't. If I say you can't do it, then I'll have a problem with the other students. I said, I suppose would you be willing to give a your speech just to me, in a room just you and me, until you feel confident to go in front of the group. She said, sure. Problem solved. But meanwhile, you know, I don't know what happened to the kids in the temple room when we were out there for at least a half an hour. And I had to kind of back up and, you know, gradually, gradually get a, a human connection with her again. So it seemed like empathy took a lot of time. But if that had been my immediate reaction, it wouldn't have. And ultimately, because we are all connected, we tend to emphasize the, the difference between me and you because we're preaching against impersonalistic philosophy. But there is also a oneness. We are all part of Krishna. We all have a connection. We really are connected to each other. We're separate individuals, but the, the, the real feeling of separation from another living entity that I have in a conditioned life is not real. So I can connect with you and empathize with you. I don't think it's so much a matter of time that we're worried about and getting things done. Because if you practice empathy, it's, it's much more efficient. It's a lot more efficient. Just think of, you know, I mean, all the hard feelings and the difficulty and the misunderstanding that comes because I don't em try to empathize in the first place. Like I was giving that example of that group I work with, and I thought they had offended me, and they thought I had offended them. Ten years we had difficulty going back and forth. And when I actually desired to empathize with them, it didn't take very long. So I don't think our resistance is time. I think that's our excuse. I think our resistance is something else. Because when I really empathize with another living entity, then I can't exploit you anymore. Because I see that we're not really separate. And that when I exploit you, who do I hurt? Who do I hurt when I try to exploit you? Myself. I can't really exploit you. I, I can't hurt you any more than you're destined to be hurt. I don't have that, I don't have that power. You have your suffering and enjoyment already destined. I can't give you any more happiness than you're destined or any more suffering than you're destined. I can't really have power over you. So all that happens is the way I treat you is, becomes my experience. That's what karma means. There's one famous psychic who said, karma means meeting yourself. It's like a, it's like a mirror. You, you get back what you've given out. So by not empathizing, I'm causing myself suffering. But the only way that I can have this illusion that I am the Lord and I am the controller and I am God is not to have empathy. The moment I have real empathy, I can't maintain that illusion. 
They're incompatible. I cannot be an exploiter and a controller and think that I'm God and be truly empathetic simultaneously. It is impossible. Because the moment, the moment I'm empathetic, I see, wait a minute, we're connected. I, I'm not your Lord. I'm not, I'm not your enjoyer. I can't gain any happiness by using you and exploiting you. The, the whole illusion just crumbles. I can't maintain it. So that's our resistance to it. And we have so many excuses. It'll take so much time. I won't be able to get my service done. Whereas Lord Kapiladev says that if you offer into the sacrifice without respecting all living entities, you're making an offering into ashes. And that is a symptom of the lowest level of spiritual practitioner, and this applies whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hare Krishna. The lowest level of spiritual practitioner is, oh, yes, I worship God, and I treat everybody else like dirt. Especially if that person isn't in my group. So maybe I treat the other Shuni Muslims nicely, but I don't treat the Shiite Muslims nicely, or the Sufis, what to speak of the Christians and the Jews and the Buddhists and the Hindus. Or the animals. Yes? Um, when a person looks, when they often think they're the most selfless, right? They have this really twisted sense of themselves. Like when uh-huh. they're really selfless and they're giving so much. How do you help bring someone along to. Are, are you ever going to be able to <laughs> help? Someone? Well, a real impersonalist, I mean, someone who is actually Brahmin realized which is rare. Most so-called impersonalists are nowhere near Brahmin realized. They would be very selfless. A truly Brahmin realized person would be very selfless because they'd see the connection. They'd see that all living entities are connected. And they, they wouldn't harm any living entity. But they wouldn't be in need, would they? No, that's what I'm saying. An actually realized impersonalist, someone who's realized Brahman is never going to harm anybody, ever. But how many people like that are there on the planet today? You know, out of six billion people, maybe there's 20 or 30 walking around who's Brahmin realized. That's, that's extremely unusual. So most impersonalists are just like any other person who takes up religion or spirituality as a convention. Just like most people who claim to be Christians or claim to be Muslims or claim to be Hindus. It's a, it's a convention. It's like, their, it's like their nationality. It, it does, it's not deep. And why impersonalists? Practically everybody thinks they're a nice person. One of the very shocking things that happens as you advance in Krishna consciousness, which I'll warn you about, and it's... I'm convinced it's one of the main reasons that people give up their practice more or less is that you'll start to see who you are. Shades of Darpan and Arjuna, their mirror will get cleaned and you'll see what you are. And you'll see that you're not really as nice as you think you are. On one hand, we're much nicer than we think we are because we're a pure soul. But one has to also see, in order to have repentance, one has to again see what we've done wrong. And one of the things Krishna will show you as you go on chanting 
it'll show you that you are a pure soul, full of all good qualities, but that you've done something wrong. And I don't think you can change your behavior until you understand that it's wrong. I don't think it's possible on a deep level. I may change my behavior, as I said previously, superficially, that, oh, I can see that this behavior isn't getting me what I want. But that, that's not a deep heart change. So how to convince anyone? They have to go through the process of cleaning the heart. And usually in the beginning, we do it sort of through subterfuge. Again, if we said to people just outright, Take to this process of yoga, clean the heart, and see what a nasty demon you're acting like. Nobody would do it. But I guarantee you that that's what's going to happen. And it's quite shocking. This reading of Vishnu Chakravati Thakura says, he says, I, I'm so fallen and full of all this you know, impurities and yet a pure desire for service has also risen in my heart due to your association, O Guru Dev. How do these two, how, these two things, how are they compatible? I don't understand how they're compatible. So the great devotees, they say, yes, I have a pure desire to serve Radha and Krishna, but I'm, I'm such a fallen person. How is this possible? So I don't, I'm just thinking of uh, one girl who visits the temple that I know, and she's not a vegetarian. And one devotee suggested to her why don't you go visit a slaughterhouse? She said, no, I don't want to visit a slaughterhouse. So it's like that. If somebody is not willing to face their actions, why would they change? And how do you get a person to face their actions? They have to be purified. And how do you get them to be purified? Chanting mostly. Chanting, doing some service. What happens if they do those things, then Krishna will be pleased with them. And, and they're, by doing those things, they're expressing some desire for yoga. They're expressing some desire to relate to Krishna. And Krishna is happy with that, and then he starts showing them what they need to do. He starts showing them. As Ravinda Prabhu said, then you chant Hare Krishna and grieve how I've offended the Lord, how I've offended the devotee, how I've offended all living entities. And that, that kind of repentance and, and grieving is absolutely necessary. And Rindustri Prabhu also says, he said that at first that feels like a very painful process because the false ego is being dismantled. And we think the false ego is me. We think I'm losing my sense of self. He said, but gradually that painful process becomes delightful because we start reviving who we really are and we're really a wonderful being. So you've got to get people to go through the process. You know, it happens even in the beginning. I'm thinking when I first started chanting, I was working in a museum, a science museum, the kind where you, like, push buttons to do things, you know, not just looking at art. And I would... I had different jobs in the museum, but sometimes I was just guarding an exhibit or counting the people that go into an exhibit or something like that on a little counter thing, like some devotees use for their japa. And I would put that behind my back and count. And I'd sit there chanting. I was 17 at the time. And I'd see sometimes teenagers going through the museum. And I remember looking at some of them and thinking, you know, they're thinking that they're really grown up and mature and together and sophisticated, but they're obviously very immature. And all of a sudden, Super Soul said to me, that's you. That's the way you're behaving. I remember also during that time, 
I went with a friend to a restaurant and there was people in the booth next to us that were talking and I thought everything they're talking about is so stupid and superficial and again I had this realization and you're the same way everything you talk about is stupid and superficial you never really talk about anything meaningful so even in the very very beginning that's one of the things that happens you start to see you know what am I doing what kind of a life am I living why am I wasting my time why am I this you, you start to see yourself more honestly but without that purification you can't See, and once you see yourself honestly, then the desire to change is pretty much instant. Immediately, I wanted to be a different kind of person. Immediately, I thought, wait a minute, I don't want to be like that. But some people resist change. And for many of us, there are certain points where Krishna shows us things that we go, whoa, I don't know if I want to deal with that. That looks a little heavy to me. And that may happen right at the beginning, and that may happen after many, many, many years of practice. You may get to something where Krishna will show you, and you say, wait, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to give this up. I don't know if I want to deal with this. Is that all right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that in the state of perfection there's complete humility, especially for the devotees in Vrindavan, in the Vrindavan Lila. That, that extent of love has to have a concomitant extent of humility. Humility is a very sweet thing. Humility is only bitter if, I'm in, if my sense of self is invested with a sense of pride. If in order to feel that this is who I am, I have to have some sense of pride about it, then humility is painful. But real humility is, is very pleasurable. As Ravinder Subaru says, you know, what starts out as being painful becomes very, 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 very pleasurable. It's something, um, I, I give a simple analogy, which I, I give many times that I think might help to understand it. And I understood this when I had, there was a surprise party for my 45th birthday. That was when I, I started to understand this principle. I hadn't expected anything. I mean, really, I hadn't expected anything. I thought maybe my kids would make a cake. I, didn't, I did not expect that the whole community was going to come out and have a whole party and I was very overwhelmed. I was very, very happy. And I was really overwhelmed with happiness. And then I realized that my happiness was due to the fact that I didn't think I deserved it. So the, the analogy I give is very simple. You have $5. You go to the shop and you buy something, and later on you find that it's only worth $3. How do you feel? Angry, right? Okay, you have $5, you buy something, and it's worth $5. How do you feel? 
Okay. You have $5, you buy something, you find that it's worth $100. How do you feel? Excited. Why? Your happiness is in direct proportion to the extent to which you feel you don't deserve it. The more you feel you deserve something, the less happy you are. The higher your opinion of yourself, the less you can enjoy anything that comes to you. If you're always thinking, I'm getting less than what I deserve, you're not happy with anything. <laughs> right? And if you're thinking, I'm getting exactly what I deserve, then, you know, life's just okay. But if you think you get, why does everybody like gifts? What does a gift mean? It means I haven't paid for it. Right? So the less you think you're deserving, the more you're, the more you're happy with everything. And one of the main things that ruins relationships in this world is thinking you deserve something, destroys them. Yeah, you see, with marriages, there's this, this couple I visit sometimes, and I'd say that the man does at least, at least 30, maybe up to sometimes 60% of the child care and the housework and the cooking. And the main complaint this woman has is my husband doesn't help me enough with the child care and the housework and the cooking. And I look at it and think, my father didn't do any of that stuff. You know, and, and he's working and she's not. He has a job and she's not. And he's doing it at least a third. And sometimes it's up to 60-70%. But her mood is, I deserve. And therefore, whatever he gives just goes in the realm of should. She doesn't see what he does as, as an offering of love. She just puts it in a should category. Well, he should do that. 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 You know, he has to do something really extraordinary for her to see it as something favorable or pleasurable. And it, it destroys relationships. This pride, this, this feeling of, I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve this. Therefore, real love is, I don't deserve anything. See, materially, if we, we're afraid, if I have the mood of, I don't deserve anything, that people will exploit me. We, we think that we need this pride and this sense of entitlement in order to protect our interests. And therefore, these things are very frightening to us. This sort of discussion is very scary. We're, we're very, very afraid of humility. Really, really afraid of humility. We think, if I'm humble, and I really, if I really thought I deserved nothing, and I didn't expect any, anyone to respect me, well, then nobody would respect me. And then I'd be abused, and I'd be exploited. And one of my answers to that is, are you sometimes exploited anyway? Does being prideful protect you? Or we're thinking it would be so much worse if I was, you know, if I was humble. But humility opens the door to joy and freedom. If you're deeply humble, then you're fully free. You don't expect anything. You're free. Whatever happens, happens. And you're, you, you're full of happiness. Whatever comes, you see as a gift. And you have some responsibility to take care of your body and so forth. You know, That's your service. Anyway, this is a big topic. I hope I've just cracked the door a little bit. 
at least, at least we should become convinced intellectually that humility is a desirable quality and that humility and joy have to go together. Humility and peace have to go together. Humility and love have to go together. You can't actually have joy, peace, and love without humility. You just can't have it. It's not there. It's something else. The kind of joy we feel when, oh, people are finally recognizing all my good qualities is not very pleasing compared to the joy you feel of, wow, I just got hundreds times more than I deserve or I, or I expected. So at least accept that intellectually and then we can start accepting it emotionally. When we fully accept that emotionally, then we go beyond the modes of material nature. That's the doorway. The doorway between practice bhakti where you're thrown about by the modes of nature and you're struggling with your mind and struggling with bad qualities and bhakti where you're above the modes of nature and the struggle is almost non-existent. The doorway between those two things is humility. That humility is the, the door to freedom. But it's a door that we really don't want to walk through. We're very, very, very frightened of walking through that door. So that generally takes time. It usually takes some time. It can take lifetimes before we have the courage Yeah, it's a choice. It's definitely a choice. Yeah? I'm thinking of uh, in the early structure and where we were saying that why it was exactly the unfavorable type of ocean service. Mm-hmm. And it seems that sometimes that can be an excuse to not open that uh, that, that's that, accepting it, this is a whole other long discussion and I really should stop because I'm supposed to go to a wedding in 20 minutes uh. accepting what's favorable and rejecting what's unfavorable for devotional service is really what that means is on two levels external and internal external that means things like I chant 16 rounds and I avoid the four sinful activities and internal it means things like accepting humility and rejecting pride <laughs> it means that kind of thing on the internal level, you can always accept what's favorable to devotional service and reject what's unfavorable. On the external level, that's not totally within our control. If you're chanting Hare Krishna in the former Soviet Union, you could be arrested and put in prison, and there's no prasadam, and there's no devotees, and there's no kirtan, and there's no altar, and there's no beads, and there's no books. and You're associating with rats and criminals. And devotees had to live like that for years. So you may be in a situation, all of us, I will promise you one thing, that as long as you are in the material world, you will have at least one external thing in your life that is unfavorable for Krishna consciousness. I I absolutely will promise you that. This material world is not designed, the spiritual world is designed to fully facilitate devotional service. This material world is designed to facilitate devotional service and to facilitate sense gratification. So you'll never be able to adjust the material external circumstances of your life so that they're all favorable to Krishna consciousness all of the time. It, you won't, it won't happen. 
And if you put the bulk of your energy there, you'll never develop Krishna consciousness. You'll always be adjusting your circumstances. So I advise people, I say, put 10% of your energy into making your circumstances favorable and 90% of your energy into being Krishna conscious in whatever circumstances you have. But internally one can always do that. Internally one can always accept what's favorable to Krishna consciousness and reject what's unfavorable. And that is talking about our attitude and our consciousness, our mentality. That you can always do. The other you may not be able to do. You know, you may be thrown into jail with, I mean, not only non-devotees, you may be thrown into jail with rapists and murderers and who knows, you know. It's happened. Devotees go out distributing books in some communist country and they get thrown into jail. These things do happen. Or you can, just like I read some friends of mine just got in a car accident. That's not very favorable from an external point of view. You know, you're in a coma. You can't even chant your 16 rounds. You can't even chant one mantra. Got tubes coming out of your mouth and out of your nose. That's not externally very favorable. There's no Mangalarti, you know. <laughs> Unless you're in the Bhaktivedanta hospital, I mean. But that's only partially under our control. That that kind of thing. Does that help? Yeah? <laughs> but then it was like, oh, uh-oh, she knows I'm a Hare Krishna, and what's that going to make her think if I, she will realize perhaps that she didn't scan it. Right, right, right. Well, you don't want to get something by cheating. Although it, although it, it does say that if you can find Krishna Prema, you should beg, borrow, or steal it even. So you can sometimes steal love of God, like you can take you know, some great devotees' remnants when they, without their looking take the dust from their feet without them looking. But, no, I don't think that our happiness we get, we get a lot of happiness if we think we've cheated somebody. I'm not talking about that. No. I'm going to see her again and we'll talk under the counter. Yeah, so I think you should take care of that. And one, one of the <laughs> nicest experiences that I had like that, our family was out shopping and there was something that was like at the bottom of the shopping cart and so we forgot about it, didn't get scanned in. And when we get, we were putting stuff in the car, all of a sudden we noticed we had this thing we didn't pay for. I think it was like 18 cents or something, some little screw or anything. And we said, okay, let's go back and pay for it. So we go back and get in the same line, and we were there in Dodi and sorry. And we said, you know, you forgot to scan this in. It was at the bottom of the cart. And the cashier stopped and looked at us and said, what religion are you? <laughs> so... <laughs> No, I'm talking about something where there's no cheating involved. You know, it's a special deal, and for $5, you can get $100 worth of something. So, yeah, then you feel very, very happy. You felt, wow, I, I got something more than I deserve. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling, getting some gift. Especially when you're feeling that from Krishna. If you feel, you know, Krishna's giving me service, and he's giving me, because he loves me. Not because 
people talk about this with parents and children, this idea of unconditional love. That you should, you, you know, they say you shouldn't say to your child, I love you because you're behaving nicely. I love my child just because they're my child. I read once about this police officer whose son ended up being a serial killer. And of course he was heartbroken that his child was such a horrendous criminal, but he still loved his child. He still had affection for his child. He didn't hate his child. He wanted his child put in prison, but he didn't hate him. So part of this humility is seeing that Krishna loves me. And I'm not really doing anything to deserve that love. In fact, especially if I've come to this material world, I've really done everything from a a logical point of view that Krishna should reject me. And still he doesn't reject me. So that's, it's a, that's really an impetus to love. All right, I have to be quiet now because otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. I was, I was brought here to go to a wedding and they'll be angry with me. But it's nice that you're all so enthusiastic. Thank you very much. All glory to Shri Prabhupada.